Section 16 of an essay concerning human understanding. Book 2 by John Locke. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chad. Chapter 21 of Power. Section 21. To return then to the inquiry about liberty. I think the question is not proper whether the will be free, but whether a man be free. Thus I think, one, that so far as any one can, by the direction or choice of his mind, preferring the existence of any action to the non-existence of that action, and vice versa, make it to exist or not exist, so far he is free. For if I can, by a thought directing the motion of my finger, make it move, when it was at rest, or vice versa. It is evident that in respect of that I am free. And if I can, by a like thought of mind, preferring one to the other, produce either words or silence, I am at liberty to speak, or hold my peace. And as far as this power reaches of acting, or not acting, by the determination of his own thought preferring either, so far is a man free. For how can we think any one freer than to have the power to do what he will, and so far as any one can, by preferring any action to its not being, or rest to any action, or just that action or rest, so far can he do what he will. For such a preferring of action to its absence is the willing of it. And we can scarce tell how to imagine any being freer than to be able to do what he wills, so that in respect of actions within the reach of such a power in him, a man seems as free as it is possible for freedom to make him. Section 22. But the inquisitive mind of man, willing to shift off from himself as far as he can all thoughts of guilt, though it be by putting himself into a worse state than that fatal necessity is not content with this. Freedom, unless it reaches farther than this, will not serve the turn. And it passes for a good plea that a man is not free at all, if he be not as free to will as he is to act what he wills. Concerning a man's liberty, there yet therefore is raised this farther question, whether a man be free to will, which, I think, is what is meant when it is disputed whether the will be free and as to that i imagine section twenty three that willing or volition being an action and freedom consisting in a power of acting or not acting a man in respect of willing or the act of volition when any action in his power is once proposed to his thoughts as presently to be done cannot be free the reason whereof is very manifest, for it being unavoidable that the action depending on his will should exist or not exist, and its existence or not existence following perfectly the determination and preference of his will, he cannot avoid willing the existence or not existence of that action. It is absolutely necessary that he will the one or the other, i.e., prefer the one to the other, since one of them must necessarily follow, and that which does follow 
follows by the choice and determination of his mind, that is, by his willing it. For if he did not will it, it would not be. So that in respect of the act of willing, a man in such a case is not free. Liberty consisting in a power to act or not to act, which, in regard of volition, a man upon such a proposal has not. For it is unavoidably necessary to prefer the doing or forbearance of an action in a man's power, which is one's purpose to his thoughts. A man must necessarily will the one or the other of them, upon which preference or volition the action or its forbearance certainly follows, and is truly voluntary. But the act of volition, or preferring one of the two, being that which he cannot avoid, a man in respect of that act of willing is under a necessity, and so cannot be free. Unless necessity and freedom can consist together, and a man can be free and bound at once. Section 24 this then is evident, that in all proposals of present action, a man is not at liberty to will or not to will, because he cannot forbear willing. Liberty consisting in a power to act, or to forbear acting, and in that only. For a man that sits still is said yet to be at liberty, because he can walk if he wills it. But if a man sitting still has not a power to remove himself, he is not at liberty. So likewise a man falling down a precipice, though in motion, is not at liberty, because he cannot stop that motion if he would. This being so, it is plain that a man that is walking, to whom it is proposed to give off walking, is not at liberty whether he will determine himself to walk, or give off walking, or no. He must necessarily prefer one or the other of them, walking or not walking. And so it is, in regard of all other actions, in our power so proposed, which are the far greater number. For considering the vast number of voluntary actions that succeed one another every moment, that we are awake in the course of our lives, there are but few of them that are thought on or proposed to the will, till the time they are to be done. And in all such actions, as I have shown, the mind in respect of willing has not a power to act or not to act, wherein consists liberty. The mind in that case has not a power to forbear willing. It cannot avoid some determination concerning them. Let the consideration be as short. The thought as quick as it will. It either leaves the man in the state he was before thinking, or changes it, continues the action, or puts an end to it whereby it is manifest that it orders and directs one in preference to or with neglect of the other and thereby either the continuation or change becomes unavoidably voluntary section twenty five since then it is plain that in most cases a man is not at liberty whether he will or no the next thing demanded is whether a man be at liberty to will which of the two he pleases, motion or rest? This question carries the absurdity of it so manifestly in itself, that one might thereby sufficiently be convinced that liberty concerns not the will.
for to ask whether a man be at liberty to will either motion or rest speaking or silence which he pleases is to ask whether a man can will what he wills or be pleased with what he is pleased with a question which i think needs no answer and they who can make a question of it must suppose one will to determine the acts of another and another to determine that and so on in infinitum section twenty six to avoid these and the like absurdities nothing can be of greater use than to establish in our minds determined ideas of the things under consideration if the ideas of liberty and volition were well fixed in the understandings and carried along with us in our minds as they ought through all the questions that are raised about them i suppose a great part of the difficulties that perplex men's thoughts and entangle their understandings would be much easier resolved and we should perceive where the confused signification of terms or where the nature of the thing caused the obscurity section twenty seven first then it is carefully to be remembered that freedom consists in the dependence of the existence or not existence of any action upon our volition of it and not in the dependence of any action or its contrary on our preference a man standing on a cliff is at liberty to leap twenty yards downwards into the sea not because he has a power to do the contrary action which is to leap twenty yards upwards for that he cannot do but he is therefore free because he has a power to leap or not to leap but if a greater force than his either holds him fast or tumbles him down he is no longer free in that case because the doing or forbearance of that particular action is no longer in his power he that is a close prisoner in a room twenty feet square being at the north side of his chamber is at liberty to walk twenty feet southward because he can walk or not walk it but is not at the same time at liberty to do the contrary i e to walk twenty feet northward in this then consists freedom viz in our being able to act or not to act according as we shall choose or will section twenty eight secondly we must remember that volition or willing is an act of the mind directing its thought to the production of any action and thereby exerting its power to produce it to avoid multiplying of words i would crave leave here under the word action to comprehend forbearance to of any action proposed sitting still or holding one's peace when walking or speaking are proposed though mere forbearances requiring as much the determination of the will and being as often weighty in their consequences as the contrary actions may on that consideration well enough pass for actions too but this i say that i may not be mistaken if for brevity's sake i speak thus section twenty nine thirdly the will being nothing but a power in the mind to direct the operative faculties of a man to motion or rest as far as they depend on such direction to the question 
What is it determines the will? The true and proper answer is the mind. For that which determines the general power of directing to this or that particular direction is nothing but the agent itself exercising the power it has that particular way. If this answer satisfies not, it is plain the meaning of the question. What determines the will? It is what moves the mind in every particular instance. To determine its general power of directing to this or that particular motion or rest. And to this I answer, the motive for continuing in the same state or action is only the present satisfaction in it. The motive to change is always some uneasiness, nothing setting us upon the change of state or upon any new action, but some uneasiness. This is the great motive that works on the mind to put it upon action, which for shortness sake we will call determining of the will, which I shall more at large explain. Section 30. But in the way to it, it will be necessary to premise that though I have above endeavoured to express the act of volition by choosing, preferring, and the like terms, that signify desire as well as volition, for want of other words to mark that action of the mind, whose proper name is willing or volition, yet it being a very simple act, whosoever desires to understand what it is will better find it by reflecting on his own mind and observing what it does when it wills, than by any variety of articulate signs whatsoever. This caution of being careful not to be misled by expressions that do not enough keep up the difference between the will and several acts of the mind that are quite distinct from it, I think the more necessary, because I find the will often confounded with several of the affections, especially desire, and one put for the other, and that by men who would not willingly be thought not to have had very distinct notions of things and not to have writ very clearly about them. This, I imagine, has been no small occasion of obscurity and mistake in this matter, and therefore is, as much as may be, to be avoided. For he that shall turn his thoughts inwards upon what passes in his mind when he wills, shall see that the will or power of volition is conversant about nothing but that particular determination of the mind, whereby, barely, by a thought, the mind endeavours to give rise, continuation, or stop, to any action which it takes to be in its part. This, well considered, plainly shows that the will is perfectly distinguished from desire, which, in the very same action, may have a quite contrary tendency from that which our will sets us upon a man whom i cannot deny may oblige me to use persuasions to another which at the same time i am speaking i may wish may not prevail on him in this case it is plain the will and desire run counter i will the action that tends one way whilst my desire tends another and that the direct contrary way a man who, by a violent fit of the gut in his limbs, finds a doziness in the 
hand, or a want of appetite in his stomach, removed, desires to be eased, too, of the pain in his feet or hands, for wherever there is pain, there is a desire to be rid of it, though yet whilst he apprehends that the removal of the pain may translate the noxious humour to a more vital part. His will is never determined to any one action that may serve to remove this pain. Whence, it is evident that desiring and willing are two distinct acts of the mind, and consequently that the will, which is but the power of volition, is much more distinct from desire. Section 31. To return then to the inquiry, what is it that determines the will in regard to our actions, and that, upon second thoughts, I am apt to imagine is not, as is generally supposed, the greater good in view, but some, and for the most part the most pressing, uneasiness a man is at present under. This is that which successfully determines the will, sets us upon those actions we perform. This uneasiness we may call, as it is, desire, which is an uneasiness of the mind for want of some absent good, all pain of the body, of what sort soever, and disquiet of the mind, is uneasiness, and with this is always joined desire, equal to the pain or uneasiness felt, and is scarce distinguishable from it. For desire being nothing but an uneasiness in the want of an absent good, in reference to any pain felt, ease is that absent good. Until that ease be attained, we may call it desire. Nobody feeling pain that he wishes not to be eased of, with a desire equal to that pain and inseparable from it. Besides this desire of ease from pain, there is another of absent positive good, and here also the desire and uneasiness are equal. As much as we desire any absent good, so much are we in pain for it. But here all absent good does not, according to the greatness it has, or is acknowledged to have, cause pain equal to that greatness, as all pain causes desire equal to itself. Because the absence of good is not always a pain, as the presence of pain is, and therefore absent good may be looked on and considered without desire. But so much as there is anywhere of desire, so much there is of uneasiness. Section 32. That desire is the state of uneasiness. Every one who reflects on himself will quickly find. Who is there that has not felt in desire what the wise man says of hope, which is not much different from it? that it being deferred makes the heart sick, and that still proportionable to the greatness of the desire, which sometimes raises the uneasiness to that pitch, that it makes people cry out, Give me children, give me the thing desired, or I die. Life itself, and all its enjoyments, is a burden cannot be borne under the lasting and unremoved pressure of such an uneasiness. Section 33. Good and evil, present and absent, it is true, work upon the mind. But that which immediately determines the will, from time to time, to every voluntary action, is the uneasiness of desire, 
fixed on some absent good, either negative, as indolence to one in pain, or positive, as enjoyment of pleasure, that it is this uneasiness that determines the will to the successive voluntary actions whereof the greatest part of our lives is made up, and by which we are conducted through different courses to different ends. I shall endeavour to show both from experience and the reason of the thing. Section 34 When the man is perfectly content with the state he is in, which is, when he is perfectly without any uneasiness, what industry, what action, what will is there left but to continue in it? Of this every man's observation will satisfy him. And thus we see our all-wise maker, suitably to our constitution and frame, and knowing what it is that determines the will has put into man the uneasiness of hunger and thirst and other natural desires that return at their seasons to move and determine their will for the preservation of themselves and the continuation of their species. For I think we may conclude that if the bare contemplation of these good ends to which we are carried by these several uneasinesses had been sufficient to determine the will and set us on work, we should have had none of these natural pains, and perhaps in this world little or no pain at all. It is better to marry than to burn, says St. Paul, where we may see what it is that chiefly drives men into the enjoyments of a conjugal life. A little burning felt pushes us more powerfully than greater pleasures in prospect, draw or allure. Section 35 it seems so established and settled a maxim by the general consent of all mankind that good, the greater good, determines the will, that I do not at all wonder that when I first published my thoughts on this subject I took it for granted, and I imagine that by a great many I shall be thought more excusable for having then done so than that now I have ventured to recede from so received an opinion. But yet upon a stricter inquiry, I am forced to conclude that good, the greater good, though apprehended and acknowledged to be so, does not determine the will until our desire, raised proportionably to it, makes us uneasy in the want of it. Convince a man ever so much that plenty has an advantage over poverty. Make him see and own that the handsome conveniences of life are better than nasty penury. Yet as long as he is content with the latter, and finds no uneasiness in it, he moves not. His will never is determined to any action that shall bring him out of it. Let a man be ever so well persuaded of the advantages of virtue, that it is as necessary to a man who has any great aims in this world, or hopes in the next, as food to life. Yet till he hungers or thirsts after righteousness, till he feels an uneasiness in the want of it, his will will not be determined to any action in pursuit of this confessed greater good. 
but any other uneasiness he feels in himself shall take place and carry his will to other actions on the other side let a drunkard see that his health decays his estate wastes his credit and diseases and the want of all things even of his beloved drink attends him in the course he follows yet the returns of uneasiness to miss his companions the habitual thirst after his cups at the usual time drives him to the tavern though he has in his view the loss of health and plenty and perhaps of the joys of another life the least of which is no inconsiderable good but such as he confesses is far greater than the tinkling of his palate with a glass of wine or the idle chat of a soaping club it is not want of viewing the greater good for he sees and acknowledges it and in the intervals of his drinking hours will take resolution to pursue the greater good but when the uneasiness to miss his accustomed delight returns the greater acknowledged good loses its hold and the present uneasiness determines the will to the accustomed action which thereby gets stronger fitting to prevail against the next occasion though he at the same time makes secret promises to himself that he will do so no more this is the last time he will act against the attainment of those greater goods and thus he is from time to time in the state of that unhappy complainer video miliora probaque deteriora sequa which sentence allowed for true and made good by constant experience may this and possibly no other way be easily made intelligible section thirty six if we inquire into the reason of what experience makes so evident in fact and examine why it is uneasiness alone operates on the will and determines it in its choice we shall find that we being capable but of one determination of the will to one action at once the present uneasiness that we are under does naturally determine the will in order to that happiness which we all aim at in all our actions for as much as whilst we are under any uneasiness we cannot apprehend ourselves happy or in the way to it pain and uneasiness being by every one concluded and felt to be inconsistent with happiness spoiling the relish even of those good things which we have a little pain serving to mar all the pleasure we rejoice in therefore that which of course determines the choice of our will to the next action will always be the removing of pain as long as we have any left as the first unnecessary step towards happiness section thirty seven another reason why it is uneasiness alone determines the will may be this because that alone is present and it is against the nature of things that what is absent should operate where it is not it may be said that absent good may by contemplation be brought home to the mind and made present the idea of it indeed may be in the mind and viewed as present there but nothing will be in the mind as a present good 
able to counterbalance the removal of any uneasiness which we are under, till it raises our desire, and the uneasiness of that has the prevalency in determining the will. Till then, the idea in the mind of whatever good is their own. Like other ideas, the object of bare, unactive speculation, but operates not on the will, nor sets us on work, the reason whereof I shall show by and by. How many are to be found that have had lively representations set before their minds of the unspeakable joys of heaven, which they acknowledged were possible and probable to, yet would be content to take up with their happiness here? And so the prevailing uneasiness of their desires, let loose after the enjoyments of this life, take their turns in the determining their wills, and all that while they take not one step, or not one jot, move towards the good things of another life, considered as ever so great. Section 38 Where the will determined by the views of good as it appears in a contemplation greater or less to the understanding, which is the state of all absolute good, and that which, in the received opinion, the will is supposed to move to, and to be moved by, I do not see how it could ever get loose from the infinite eternal joys of heaven, once proposed and considered as possible. For all absolute good, by which alone, barely proposed, and coming in view, the will is thought to be determined, and so to set us on action, being only possible, but not infallibly certain, it is unavoidable that the infinitely greater possible good should regularly and constantly determine the will in all the successive actions it directs. And then we should keep constantly and steadily in our course towards heaven, without ever standing still or directing our actions to any other end, the eternal condition of a future state infinitely outweighing the expectation of riches or honour or any other worldly pleasure which we can propose to ourselves, though we should grant these the more probable to be obtained. For nothing future is yet in possession, and so the expectation even of these may deceive us. If it were so, that the greater good in view determines the will so great a good once proposed could not but seize the will and hold it fast to the pursuit of this infinitely greatest good without ever letting it go again for the will having a power over directing the thoughts as well as other actions would if it were so hold the contemplation of the mind fixed to that good this would be the state of the mind and regular tendency of the will in all its determinations, were it determined by that which is considered and in view the greater good, but that it is not so is visible in experience. The infinitely greatest confessed good being often neglected to satisfy the successive uneasiness of our desires pursuing trifles, but though the greatest allowed even everlasting unspeakable good, which sometimes moved and affected the mind, does not steadfastly hold will. Yet we see 
any very great and prevailing uneasiness, having once laid hold on the will, lets it not go, by which we may be convinced what it is that determines the will. Thus, any vehement pain of the body, the ungovernable passion of a man violently in love, or the impatient desire of revenge, keeps the will steady and intent, and the will, thus determined, never lets the understanding lay by the object. But all the thoughts of the mind and powers of the body are uninterruptedly employed that way, by the determination of the will, influenced by that topping uneasiness as long as it lasts, whereby it seems to me evident that the will or power of setting us upon one action in preference to all other is determined in us by uneasiness. And whether this be not so, I desire every one to observe in himself. Section 39. I have hitherto chiefly instanced in the uneasiness of desire as that which determines the will, because that is the chief and most sensible, and the will seldom orders any action, nor is there any voluntary action formed without some desire accompanying it, which I think is the reason why the will and desire are so often confined it. But yet we are not to look upon the uneasiness which makes up, or at least accompanies most of the other passions, as wholly excluded in the case. Aversion, fear, anger, envy, shame, etc., have each their uneasiness too, and thereby influence the will. These passions are scarce any of them in life and practice, simple and alone, and wholly unmixed with others, though usually in discourse and contemplation that carries the name which operates strongest and appears most in this present state of the mind. Nay, there is, I think, scarce any of the passions to be found without desire joined with it. I am sure, wherever there is uneasiness, there is desire, for we constantly desire happiness. And whatever we feel of uneasiness, so much it is certain we want of happiness, even in our own opinion. Let our state and condition otherwise be what it will. Besides, the present moment not being our eternity, whatever our enjoyment be, we look beyond the present, and desire goes with our foresight, and that still carries the will with it, so that even in joy itself, that which keeps up the action, whereon the enjoyment depends, is the desire to continue, and fear to lose it. And whenever a greater uneasiness than that takes place in the mind, the will presently is, without determined, to some new action, and the present delight neglected. Section 40 But we, being in this world, beset with sundry uneasiness, distracted with different desires, the next inquiry naturally will be, which of them has the precedency in determining the will to the next action? And to that the answer is that ordinarily, which is the most pressing of those that are judged capable of being then removed? For the will being the power of directing our operative faculties, 
to some action for some end cannot at any time be moved towards what is judged at that time unattainable that would be to suppose an intelligent being designedly to act for an end only to lose its labour for so it is to act for what is judged not attainable therefore very great uneasiness move not the will when they are judged not capable of a cure they in that case put us not upon endeavours but these set apart the most important and urgent uneasiness we at that time feel is that which ordinarily determines the will successively in that train of voluntary actions which makes up our lives the greatest present uneasiness is the spur to action that is constantly felt and for the most part determines the will in its choice of the next action for this we must carry along with us that the proper and only object of the will is some action of ours nothing else for we producing nothing by our willing it but some action in our power it is there the will terminates and reaches no farther section forty one if it be farther asked what it is moves desire i answer happiness and that alone happiness and misery are the names of two extremes the utmost bounds whereof we know not it is what eye hath not seen ear not heard nor hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive but of some degrees of both we have very lively impressions made by several instances of delight and joy on the one side and torment and sorrow on the other which for shortness sake i shall comprehend under the names of pleasure and pain there being pleasure and pain of the mind as well as the body with him is fullness of joy and pleasure for evermore for to speak truly they are all of the mind though some have their rise in the mind from thought others in the body from certain modifications of motion section forty two happiness then in its full extent is the utmost pleasure we are capable of and misery the utmost pain and the lowest degree of what can be called happiness is so much ease from all pain and so much present pleasure as without which any one cannot be content now because pleasure and pain are produced in us by the operation of certain objects either on our minds or our bodies and in different degrees therefore what has an aptness to produce pleasure in us is that we call good and what is apt to produce pain in us we call evil for no other reason but for its aptness to produce pleasure and pain in us wherein consists our happiness and misery farther though what is apt to produce any degree of pleasure be in itself good and what is apt to produce any degree of pain be evil yet it often happens that we do not call it so when it comes in competition with the greater of its sort because when they come in competition the degrees also of pleasure and pain have justly a preference so that if we will rightly estimate what we call good and evil we shall find it lies much in comparison for the cause of every less degree of pain 
as well as every greater degree of pleasure has the nature of good and vice versa section forty three though this be that which is called good and evil and all good be the proper object of desire in general yet all good even seen and confessed to be so does not necessarily move every particular man's desire but only that part or so much of it as is considered and taken to make a necessary part of his happiness all other good however great in reality or appearance excites not a man's desires who looks not on it to make a part of that happiness wherewith he in his present thoughts can satisfy himself happiness under this view every one constantly pursues and desires what makes any part of it other things acknowledged to be good he can look upon without desire pass by and be content without there is nobody i think so senseless as to deny that there is pleasure in knowledge and for the pleasures of sense they have too many followers to let it be questioned whether men are taken with them or no now let one man place his satisfaction in sensual pleasures another in the delight of knowledge though each of them cannot but confess there is great pleasure in what the other pursues yet neither of them making the other's delight a part of his happiness their desires are not moved but each is satisfied without what the other enjoys and so his will is not determined to the pursuit of it but yet as soon as the studious man's hunger and thirst makes him uneasy he whose will was never determined to any pursuit of good cheer poignant sauces delicious wine by the pleasant taste he has found in them is by the uneasiness of hunger and thirst presently determined to eating and drinking though possibly with great indifferency what wholesome food comes in his way and on the other side the epicure buckles to study when shame or the desire to recommend himself to his mistress shall make him uneasy in the want of any sort of knowledge thus how much soever men are in earnest and constant in pursuit of happiness yet they may have a clear view of good great and confessed good without being concerned by it or moved by it if they think they can make up their happiness without it though as to pain that they are always concerned for they can feel no uneasiness without being moved and therefore being uneasy in the want of whatever is judged necessary to their happiness as soon as any good appears to make a part of their portion of happiness they begin to desire it section forty four this i think any one may observe in himself and others that the greater visible good does not always raise men's desires in proportion to the greatness it appears and is acknowledged to have though every little trouble moves us and sets us on work to get rid of it the reason whereof is evident from the nature of our happiness and misery itself all present pain whatever it be makes a part of our present misery but all absent good does not at any time make a necessary part of our present happiness nor the absence of it make a part of our misery if it did we should be constantly and infinitely miserable 
there being infinite degrees of happiness which are not in our possession all uneasiness therefore being removed a moderate portion of good serves at present to content men and some few degrees of pleasure in the succession of ordinary enjoyments make up a happiness wherein they can be satisfied if this were not so there could be no room for those indifferent and visibly trifling actions to which our wills are so often determined and wherein we voluntarily waste so much of our lives which remissness could by no means consist with a constant determination of will or desire to the greatest apparent good that this is so i think few people need go far from home to be convinced and indeed in this life there are not many whose happiness reaches so far as to afford them a constant train of moderate mean pleasures without any mixture of uneasiness and yet they could be content to stay here for ever though they cannot deny but that it is possible there may be a state of eternal durable joys after this life far surpassing all the good that is to be found here nay they cannot but see that it is more possible than the attainment and continuation of that pittance of honour riches or pleasure which they pursue and for which they neglect that eternal state but yet in full view of this difference satisfied of the possibility of a perfect secure and lasting happiness in a future state and under a clear conviction that is not to be had here whilst they bind their happiness within some little enjoyment or aim of this life and exclude the joys of heaven from making any necessary part of it their desires are not moved by this greater apparent good nor their wills determined to any action or endeavour for its attainment End of section sixteen. Recording by Chad.